Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Thinking Fans Premier League Podcast. We get together each week with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. Today, we're, I'm joined by soccer analyst Harshel Patel. I'm host Chris Mumford. Bella Ciao. We're sponsored by the Premier League Guide, a gift for those mad about football, Moneyball for Soccer, Opposition Analysis plus Eye Candy. The current update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. During match day 16, dare I say there is parity in the Premier League. Only seven points separate first and 10th place with games in hand everywhere. We're going to recap some of the surprises and some of the pedestrian wins. Harshal, why don't we go and get started with Everton uh, and West Ham played uh, against each other. And, you know, it's a game worth mentioning because Everton is, has done very well. But West Ham was able to win 1-0. What was your take on the match? It was just, I mean, as you said, it was pedestrian in the sense that West Ham scored late at the end through Thomas Suchek and got the three points. But... I thought they actually did a really good job in blunting the Everton attack. Everton really couldn't, didn't have uh, too many scoring opportunities. They were mostly funneled out wide because West Ham were, again, extremely compact and they sort of shut down anything that came in the centre. And, I mean, even if Everton sent in crosses, we, do, uh, we have seen Dominic Albert-Lewin do really well in the air and he is a very good uh, header of the ball, but he wasn't really able to get much sort of, you know, much change out of out of the West Ham centre-backs. And uh, it's just uh, another, I think, it, it's impressive in the sense, uh, for me, uh, because West Ham looked completely different to what they looked like, like last season, where they were relegation candidates. They just got saved towards the end of the, towards the last few weeks of the campaign. But it looked like they would have, you know, gone down if a couple of results hadn't gone their way last season. But... This season, they look a lot better. They look more. Um, they look better in every in every department, uh, attacking and defend uh, and defending. Um, they're they're a lot more compact. They don't give up too many chances, and even on the attack, they've become more clinical. And crucially, they're getting goals from uh, two or three players rather than just relying on Mikhail Antonio, Jared Bowen, for example, who was signed in January last year from the Championship, has really done well in the Premier League in the last 12 months and uh, that that that's really helped them along so i've been really impressed with david moyes and the work he's done at west ham everton it's a blip but then again we've been seeing this with everton and we've spoken about it earlier on the podcast as well where they've not been able to put together a, a, a sort of you know a long run or a decent run of results it's always at least this season it's been They'll pick up a win or two wins and then they'll drop points or they'll lose a couple of games and then they'll come back and win a game. So it's been a bit topsy-turvy, but still, they're, in, they're, they're still in a good place in the table. They're um, seventh, but I mean, given, as you said earlier, that it's such a small gap to the top. They have, they're just four points off the top of the table and they have a game in hand on Liverpool. So uh yeah it, it was it was pretty yeah, decent I, in that sense i think my sense is that everton at seventh is probably where they belong and west ham is a tenth and that's probably where they belong as well um speaking of where they belong you know aston villa the i think i can i think i can team did play against man united and man united were able to end up on top two to one let's break down that game 
the result was probably what all of us expected i guess i mean a united win and i think if i remember correctly i think i got the scoreline correct as well if we go back to last week's predictions i think i went for a 2-1 win but yeah if you if you sort of look back at the game i think villa gave a good account of themselves they did create chances they did put united's backline under pressure and solskjaer will be extremely pleased by the fact that united came through that test and that they were able to get the three points at the end i mean um eric bai played i think his fourth game in a row now because victor lindelof has been managing a back problem for almost a year and uh he he hasn't been playing now for the last three or four games so it was a partnership of bai and maguire and what eric bai brings to the united backline is the fact that he's a lot faster than both lindelof and maguire so united can actually play a higher line with the knowledge that bai can probably get back if they if the if um opposition attackers go through and at the same time he is a lot more aggressive and he uh is also a lot more sort of ambitious in his passing so that does give united a sort of different dynamic at the back both defensively and offensively and we saw that in terms of his defending as well when he, uh, there was the last ditch block that he pulled off on keenan davis shot uh to to keep the three points for united from an attacking sense i thought united again created chances maybe didn't take a couple of them but then eventually did get the goals uh, you know to to get them the win through rashford and uh, and uh, bruno fernandes penalty so a good a good uh, result for united given that uh, and that one that keeps them in touch with liverpool at the top of the table and we'll see where it goes from here i'm not going to i'm i'm still not convinced that united are title contenders because it's only 16 games if it's a similar situation where united up three or four points off the top of the table 10 games from now then yes then i think we can safely assume that united will be title contenders but it's still a little too early to call them sort of liverpool's biggest rivals this season see i i saw a lot of parity in this game um similarities in parity i mean they both employ a 4231 uh, as far as xg Man United uh was a 2.37 and Aston Villa was a 2.2. Um in terms of shots on target, Man United had 17 versus Aston Villa's 15. The difference maker was Man United had 9 shots on target compared to Aston Villa's 5. And if you're going to shoot twice as many shots on frame, you're probably going to do better. Um and that's where I think the the 2 to 1 the the random the randomness or the the butterflies flutter uh in south america uh changes the impact of the game because from a possession perspective you know aston villa uh edged out is a 52% and i get the fact that aston villa likes possession and man united's more comfortable with backing off i uh and giving giving the ball up um for counter strikes but i i just wonder i imagine if these guys played 10 times i'd think that uh it could go 5-5 or 6-4 man united i just think there's a lot more parity there um of course that means aston villa is now eighth in the table and man united is in second um tied for first in terms of points so going to be interesting to see aston villa is going to have some interesting matches um that are going to be coming up uh liverpool uh they're going to play um liverpool uh in the fa cup this weekend uh be interesting to see which players are on uh the pitch for that and they've got to play Tottenham, Everton and Man City. So uh it's going to be real um 
a time uh, for Aston Villa for us to kind of figure out uh, the, I think I can, I think I can too. I know I can. Um, so we'll kind of see where, where they go. Um, so as far as moving on to um, uh, the next match, uh, you know, this was billed as, as kind of the, the battle of the, the tacticians, um, Tottenham and Leeds, uh, Mo versus Bielsa. And Tottenham won fairly easily 3-0. Um, Harshal, what was your take on that match? Yeah, it's it was billed as sort of the the clash of the two extremes where, I mean, not two extremes in the sense that both of the managers, uh, I mean, Bielsa and Mourinho are guys who stick to their guns and will play their style no matter what. So they're pretty similar in that sense, but it's just that their styles of football are almost diametrically opposite. But yeah, as you said, uh, Spurs were actually pretty comfortable winners. Um, Leeds were their usual high-energy selves and they did cause Spurs some problems, but they didn't really create too many clear-cut chances. And uh, I thought uh, Spurs did really well in terms of getting behind the Leeds backline and creating the couple of... They killed off the game early, basically, with, mm -hmm. with the penalty, obviously, but also the Son's goal, which I thought was a beautiful pass by Harry Kane out from the right. And that's now 36 times that in the Premier League that Harry Kane or Son Young min have assisted each other, which is the second highest in the Premier League. Uh, and I think it's only behind Frank Lampard and Didier Drogba as a partnership. We're on 39, so I think they'll probably clear that this season. But that also shows you how important, obviously, both of these players have been to Spurs. And there is an argument to be made that if one or both of them miss games through injury, suspension... Any other reason that Spurs might not be able to keep up, uh, you know, in terms of getting results. But I think that's the case for a lot of teams, you know, if they, if they lose a couple of crucial players. But yeah, uh, I thought another thing to mention here is that Ilan Melier makes two errors here, which lead to goals. The first one being the pass, which uh, sort of was intercepted. And then Alioski brings down, um, I think it was... Uh, uh, I can't remember who the player was, but he brought down the Spurs player for the penalty. And then Spurs' third goal, which I think should have been an easy save, but he lets it go over the line. I think, I mean, he's he's there's been a bit of stick for him on social media, but he's 20. He's the youngest goalkeeper in the Premier League, probably in all the top five European leagues. So let's cut him some slack. And the fact that he's playing at such a high level and that he is still pulling off saves week on week and is absolutely excellent with the ball at his feet as well, is a great sign for the future. And I mean, you just need to look at Hugo Lloris, a, a fellow countryman um, who also started his career very young. I think he was, he became uh, number one for his club at the age of 19. And he's still around at the age of what, uh, 35, 38 or so. So yeah. not 38, 35 or so. So the, if Melia can have anything like that consistency, I think it'll be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you on 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 most accounts. Uh, we expected Leeds to dominate possession; they did, sixty three percent. Your your point is spot on. Tottenham had a xG of three point two nine versus Leeds of point nine nine. So clearly, Tottenham created the the legit scoring opportunities. Thirty five goal shots uh, in the game, um, and I just. Leeds is like the fun buddy you want to take to the party because wherever he is, that's where the party is. Um, 
Uh, now, interestingly, Tottenham had seven shots on goal versus Leeds four. And, you know, as far as the goals go, keep in mind that Leeds were missing three of their center backs, right? So they that was about as makeshift as a back line as possible. And I guess Mesley had uh, approximately 30 passes. Uh, and if you're going to play that style, you have to be willing to accept the benefits and the costs of doing that. And um, uh, clearly uh, th- giving up the ball in your own defensive third through a bad pass is going to cause all sorts of havoc. Um, the penalty in my mind is uh, probably a penalty, but uh, unfortunate because um, I, I don't think it had, had to happen. I, I think that Aliaski could have, you have to trust your keeper and your defenders in those situations, even if you're caught out of position like that. The Meslier, the third goal, uh, you know, I think it's debatable. You, you, it's, you, you think that's what a keeper could say, but that, that was, that was an awfully hard situation to be put into. And, you know, I, I think that um, any, any criticism of, of the keeper is um, a bit, a bit naive. I, I just, I think that just as Leeds will continue to lose the ball more than not in their defensive third or in their defensive half. Um, you have to accept the the risk and the reward for those elements. But, um, you know, I think Leeds are, as I've said before, they're losing against the teams that are above them. They're, they're pretty even with those around them and they're winning against those below. Tottenham, on the other hand, I worry uh, to exactly what's your point. I just think that, that, when, not if, but when Sun, Kane, or both are out, who, who's driving the ship? And uh, I think that's, that's a big concern, and I don't know how you fix that problem with the talent that you have, and I don't think they have any any money to go out in the transfer window, and I wouldn't even know who to buy. Um, maybe Giroud. Um, so um, so as, as, we, as we move on to the Crystal Palace, Sheffield United, 2-0 um, Crystal Palace, um, fairly straightforward. The interesting game was the Brighton Wolves game where the Wolves scored an uncharacteristic three goals in the first half. And quite candidly, I thought it was done and dusted uh, and and um, went to work on my to-do list that my wife has for me um, on the weekend. And uh, I come back and all of a sudden it's 3-3. What, what, what happened there, Arshel? I think... Um it's it's i wouldn't say it's a game that showed you what both these teams are about but wolves for example they obviously have lost raul jimenez and probably for the rest of the season so they've had to play without a focal point in attack they're, they're having to play an 18 year old in fabio silva who was clearly not i mean he was bought this year for a lot of money but the point the the, the plan was to blood him in slowly um, into the Premier League, whereas now he's having to sort of, you know, start up front in the Premier League at such a young age. And um, Nuno actually moved to a back four. He moved back to a back four for this game. I mean, Wolves had been uh, played a back four for three or four games earlier uh, this season. Then he moved, uh, went back to his tried and trusted back three, back five. And he came back to a back four for this game. Now, the thing is, he... Uh, I mean, Nuno has wanted to make Wolves more attacking and a bit more um, 
I'd say proactive rather than reactive, which which is why he's shifted formation. But the point is that the fact that Wolves have lost a defender in terms of the formation change, and have also lost an attacker now because they don't have him in, as has meant that they've not been able to score the goals to compensate for the sort of leaky defending that we've seen from them over the last few weeks. And you don't associate that with Wolves. Wolves have been one of the most solid sides in the Premier League over the last two years since they've been promoted. And that was what happened here as well. You know, they did take a 3-1 lead, but then they sort of capitulated, came back to 3-2 after the concession of the penalty and 3-all, 3-3 from from a corner, which again, set pieces has been a problem defensively for for Wolves as well. So those are some things which I think Nuno needs to try and figure out a solution for. Um, There are rumours, at least on the offensive side of things, there are rumours that they could move for Diego Costa. Uh, on a uh, as a free agent, given that he's his uh, deal at Atletico has been uh, cancelled, so I mean that'll be interesting to see if they do get him and how he could fit in back into the Premier League two three years after he left. But uh, I think they they do need to tighten up defensively, which is I mean I would I'd never thought I'd say that about Wolves because it was always the fact that it was the offensive side of things that needed work in terms of them scoring more goals. It's gone the other way this season for them. I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I mean, with a minus six goal differential, you just don't think of Wolves as that. And, you know, if they've only scored 18 goals uh, compared to 20, 24. And I just, 18 is pretty sparse. And, uh, you know, they're in 13th place. So I think the Diego Costa uh, is the right trade. Uh, you're doing a deal with the devil there. But uh, it's the devil you know. Um, so we'll kind of see, monitor that very closely. That to me almost seems like a no brainer, um, given that there'll be little to no fee associated with that. And, and Costa, I, I think, wants to redeem himself, particularly as, uh, as he left under the shadow of a nemesis, um, Suarez, um, taking his role at, at Atletico. Let's turn our attention to West Brom Arsenal. Um, I guess Arsenal's got some happy news now. Uh, they ended up winning 4-0 in a pretty handy um, victory. What are what are some points we need to learn about this match? Not just this match, and I mean, I w- this is applicable not just to this match, but I think Arsenal's last three games or four games where they've picked up, I think, three wins. And in general, going forward, I think Arteta needs to play the kids which we've spoken about earlier as well. It's not as simple as playing the kids. It's it's about, for example, um, in this game as well, Lacazette scored two goals. He's got five goals in his last four games now. He's on a really good run. But the reason for that is that he's he's had a, ten, a, a tendency, whether it's due to his own natural game or whether it's under instruction, instruction from Arteta, but he's been dropping deep and looking to link up play with the midfielders or to sort of play in the wide attackers. And that only works when you have quick, rapid wingers and attacking midfielders playing around you who are who are great in terms of making runs off the ball and are quick enough to be able to get behind the defensive line. Because if, they, if those things are not there and you're dropping off the defensive line, there's nobody to occupy those defenders or to occupy the space that you've vacated if you don't have those players around you. And Lacazette has had that now for the last three or four games since Arteta has played um, the likes of Gabriel Martinelli, Emil Smith-Rowe. He's played Saka on the wing rather than playing him 
as a wing back he's playing him on the right wing so with these guys playing around lacazette it's it's sort of brought the best out of him as well and it's given arsenal a really good solid uh base attack uh, in terms of their their attacking play and i think emil smithrow is a real talent uh and we've spoken about arsenal lacking creativity so playing a natural sort of playmaker slash number 10 in that side is vital and if you're not going to play mesut ozil or i mean obviously it seems as though his time at arsenal is up so then you play the next best alternative which is even though he is 18 he does he he absolutely looks the part so i actually think ateta has a decision to make here in terms of whether he's going to play obameyang or when he's going to play obameyang because i think at the moment on form arsenal's best four attacking wise is lacazette uh, martinelli on the left saka on the right and emil smithro as the number 10 so whether you swap out obameyang for lacazette is the question but i wouldn't wouldn't drop the other three at the moment and that's what is really working for them some of the movement off the ball was absolutely brilliant against west brom and the kun cop yeah i mean i just i think lacazette there're not many things that lacazette does better than obameyang but i do think that post up play um and being the target um i just think lacazette is is better at that uh i'm wondering if we're starting to see a trend i mean kane is coming deeper de bruyne is coming deeper you know you have all these um you know formerly great strikers they're coming back and and playing more of a a playmaker role as it seems like there is a trend for faster and faster wingers is this a a old trend that has become new again or is this the new new trend in terms of um players coming back with speedy wingers i wouldn't say it's an old trend i mean if you look at it say 10 years ago they're not exactly playing a false nine role like how messi did mm-hmm. when he's sort of he didn't pioneer it but he sort of brought it into global attention when he started playing as a false nine some 10 11 years ago at barcelona which was mm-hmm. and the point of that was basically a to be able to link up with xavi and iniesta and then you had the likes of thierry henry david villa pedro these guys on the wings who could take advantage of the space that messi was vacating mm-hmm. it's a similar concept that the likes of lacazette uh kevin de bruyne the way he was used against city uh, sorry against chelsea by city or mm-hmm. uh, even marcial to an extent for united he he doesn't drop too deep but he also plays with his back to goal and he likes to sort of link up with rashford and uh fernandez rather than always making runs in behind he usually it's it's you need to sort of instruct him to make runs in behind his natural game is to come short mm-hmm. so Yeah you're right I mean there has been a tendency or a shift towards these sort of players at least in the Premier League where you have a lot of quick rapid wingers who are also becoming good goal scorers as well you know they have the finishing ability and the clinical uh, sort of uh, finishing in their in their boots to be able to take advantage of the chances that you would normally expect those strikers to be taking so maybe yeah this this does look like a, a decent sort of tactical development that's happening is if not this just this season maybe over the last 12 months or so i got gotcha. you all right well so um I, i am curious to see i, I do think that lacazette was going deeper um in the past earlier in the season they're just they're either they hadn't figured out the patterns of play or whatever but somehow something's clicked and it could be that it's the 
the magic that something's clicked. It could be the regression to the mean, depending on what philosophy you buy into. But it, it's going to be fascinating to see if Arsenal can continue to charge up um, the table. Um, speaking of which, uh, Newcastle played Leicester City, and um, Leicester City took care of business with a two to two to one win. Um, fairly um, s- solid performance on on Leicester's side there. I want to turn our attention to the next game, uh, which I think we're going to feast on, which is the Chelsea Man City, uh, where Man City ended up prevailing 3-1 in a very, very comfortable, surprisingly comfortable win over Chelsea. Harsha, what, what, what happened there? That, I think, was a Pep Guardiola masterclass. It was the best performance from City this season by far. Uh, they we, We've spoken about it earlier as well. It's been covered extensively elsewhere. Uh, the fact that City have really struggled for creativity and for goals this season, but you wouldn't. I mean, if you saw that, if this was the first City game you saw this season, you'd think they'd been on, you know, the the same level of form and and the the same sort of level of performance that they've been on for the last two two and a half three seasons or so. Because, um, and it, I think it a large part of that. We will get to Chelsea as as well in this discussion, but a large part of that was down to Pep's selections, the team he picked. And bear in mind that City were missing seven players, seven first-choice players, five of them due to positive COVID tests. They didn't have... So you had Zach Steffen making his debut in goal, You because obviously Edison tested positive. You didn't have uh, Laporte, I mean, in the sense that he's sort of been dropped because John Stones is playing so well. So it's John Stones, Ruben Diaz... Uh, center back pairing. Kyle Walker had tested positive, so Joao Cancelo came in on the on the right. Oleg, uh, Alexander Zinchenko made his first Premier League start of the season at left back. I mean, he was supposed to have left the club in the summer, but it didn't work out. So he made his first start at left back, or I mean, not in any of any sort in the Premier League this season. And I thought the way Pep used, I, I, so I have been crying out for Pep to use natural wingers, which is basically using wingers on their uh, natural side in the sense that if it's a right-footed player, play him on the right, left-footed player, play him on the left. And that's what Pep did with Foden on the left and Sterling on the right. And the fact that the, those two players were providing the width for City meant that there was space for De Bruyne, for Bernardo Silva, for even Gundogan and Rodri when they went forward. Because you saw that for, for the second goal, for example, when Foden scored, he held the width on, on the left-hand side right until sort of De Bruyne was ready to make that final pass, which is when he came inside. So as a result, the uh, Aspilicata, who was obviously Chelsea's right back on the day, was forced to stay wide. And then obviously that did open up the gap between him and Zuma for Foden to then dart into. So I thought De Bruyne had a, an absolutely brilliant game. Joao Cancelo has, for me, he's been one of City's best players this season. He's played at left back and at right back, but the way Pep has used him, he comes into midfield when City have the ball and he almost plays as a central midfielder. Uh, and he he obviously defensively, he's done well this season, but it's his creative side, which I've been really impressed with because the last four or five games, it's along with De Bruyne, it's actually been Cancelo who's been their biggest creative threat. And we saw that in this game as well, where he, uh, in the first few moments of the game, he played a really good pass for De Bruyne who went through on goal, but then couldn't, I mean, his shot was off target. You'd have expected him to score from there. But uh, from a City point of view, it was their best performance of the season. 
they have been solid defensively which has been an issue for them say over the last i'd say year or so where they were giving up counter attacking opportunities and conceding goals but they they've looked like they've tightened that up and now i i i would hope that pep would stick with this lineup or at least this this sort of uh profile where you've got natural wingers providing width and then maybe de bruyne as the false nine or or bernardo silva as a false nine and which gives them the space to play and that then you have ford and sterling being able to make those runs outside shall i i'm generally inclined to agree with you though i i would probably prefer ederson um back over my my countryman zack stefan um still um i think stefan is going to make a great um starting keeper at some point but ederson is still world class you know what i'm really struck by is from a defensive perspective if you look at defensive actions per 90 man city has no one near the the top 20 um in terms of uh defenders and i guess my takeaway on that is that it's not that they're bad defenders it's just that from that we're not capturing how well they are in positional play um and frankly we're not capturing how well um the pressure uh from the midfielders and and the forwards are um but what i am struck by is this last match in particular cn diaz and stones work together um i just felt that stones felt that had the confidence if he needed to move up uh if he needed to initiate um some play he felt he felt that he had someone there back that had his back and i i just thought that was really interesting to see um so I guess that I'm I'm interested in that that Man City doesn't at least from general um metrics or analytics they're not real striking. Um obviously from a uh forward perspective, you know, Mares, De Bruyne or Foden, they're all in the top 20, right? And and that's uh you know, th- those are it was just it was fabulous to watch it was so entertaining and i know foden's only 20 but wow it seems like he's he's ready to go um so that's going to have some interesting uh, implications on mares um going forward but it's a great problem to have uh and uh pep like lampard is i wonder if he is reevaluating who his best 11 is help us unpack what happened over on the chelsea side. Yeah, before that just a quick note on the fact that on the defensive stats that you pointed out. So I think yeah. a major reason for that is the fact that city usually will dominate the ball 9 nine 9 and a half 10 times out of 10, right? Yeah. So defensive stats the, the problem with using defensive stats in general in analysis in football analysis is the fact that teams which have high possession will not normally feature mm-hmm. highly on defensive stats because if you have only if you have 60 65% of the ball your defenders don't have the opportunity to make those tackles and interceptions and blocks and all of those which would put you in those you know in the top rankings with those metrics so i think the fact that they're not in the top 20 is a reflection of the fact that city usually don't need to do too much defensive work as compo- compared to a west brom or even a leeds for example sure so that's basically i think the reasoning behind that but yeah they've they've still been very very solid i mean they have the lowest xga city have the lowest xg of any team in the league this season and they've only conceded uh 13 goals which is also the lowest in the league so 
Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, the defensive side of things has been tightened up, and now we can see that attacking side come through. Mm-hmm. Coming to Chelsea, I think uh, Lampard. Uh, the selection was a bit confused because if you look at if you look at Chelsea's lineup on the day, they played uh, a midfield of uh, Ingolo Kante, uh, Mason Mount, and and you had the like, and you had Timo Werner, Christian uh, Pulisic, and Hakim Ziyech starting a game together for the first time. The problem here is that all of these players are much more suited to a counter-attacking game, a transition-based game, than a possession-based game. Which I thought. So when I saw the lineup, I thought that that's what Chelsea were going to do. That they were going to sit back and then counter-attack through these players. But instead, Chelsea sort of you know went in really aggressive in terms of the press. Uh, they were trying to sort of play possession football in terms of keeping the ball and trying to work. their way out of their half and into the city half through passing triangles and pa- and and sort of possession oriented football rather than playing a transition based uh game which i thought they would which was not suited to the players they have i mean timo werner has re- i don't think he's ever played uh as a central striker in a 433 because he's not suited to playing that role he doesn't he's not going to be someone who's going to hold up the ball and play it off to runners or you know have he doesn't have that's not his profile he's he is someone who looks to run in behind the defense and uh sort of thrived at rb leipzig as a sort of inside forward playing off the left off another striker so if you're going to play him in a, as a central striker in 433 you need to play a counter attacking game where you play passes into the channels or you play a quicker style of play or more direct style of play and it's the same thing with pulisic ziyech kante all these guys if you were to play I mean I don't know what went wrong there in terms of the lineup and the way they played because if you wanted to play a possession based game I would have thought uh Lampard would have started with Jorginho he he would have started or Billy Gilmore who did come on in the second half late in the second half he would I would have started with Tammy Abraham or Olivier Giroud because they can hold up the ball and uh bring the sort of midfielders and wingers into play so I thought Lampard got his team absolutely wrong here either that or he got his strategy wrong one of the two but so let me jump in there harshal i mean yeah. I, i will tell you i i think your your point supported by the fact that i saw that chelsea had 55% possession and i honestly i, I saw that on wisecout and i said that must be a typo um but i i double checked with another source and chelsea did indeed have 55% possession so it's fascinating that you said that their the selection was was geared more towards a counterattacking though though they still had more more possession right and the truth is is that man city absolutely dominated in terms of shots total 18 versus 9 and then shots on goal 6 versus 2 so it was a tour de force even though chelsea i, I would never imagine seeing this statistic as being the case that chelsea da- won the the possession yeah so as i said um he he i think that's he he got his tactics wrong because as the lineup suggested that he was going to play a counter attacking game which i think is should have been the way to play against city and he should have selected the players for that so it i mean yes there have been injuries there have been uh, covid issues that chelsea have had to face as well with certain members of their squad all of that but that's something every team is facing this year i don't think lampard can use that as a legitimate excuse because every team is going through that and they're adapting uh and this result has actually i mean set off 
a lot of speculation around Lampard's future now. So, and this is obviously coming on the back of a pretty poor run of results over the last four or five games. I think the game against Leeds at Stamford Bridge, where they beat Leeds three-one about a month or so ago, was the last time I saw Chelsea play well. They've not really played well since then. They've won one game since then, which is against West Ham. Um, also at the bridge, three uh, nil. But I thought this that scoreline flattered Chelsea. They they weren't good enough to win that game three nil. So they have they have been struggles over the last month. Um, Havertz. Uh, the biggest questions are obviously around: Does Lampard know how to get the best out of Werner and Havertz, who are the two sort of big marquee signings they made this summer? So I think he will get time. He will get uh, because I mean we spoke about how tight the table is. Chelsea are still. Just six points off the top four, so he. I think he will get time to sort of fix this and and get back to get Chelsea back to a top four or, or thereabouts. But this game, I thought he was. I, I, I as I said, I was really surprised by the by the way that Chelsea side played based on the lineup because I thought they would have gone for a counterattacking uh, setup I, based on on the eleven. I have to tell you, I am a bit dumbfounded. Uh, with Lampard's player selection, um, but probably in a, a little different way. If if in the Premier League, the number one goals per 90 minutes is on your bench, and then the person right next to him, I think is number two or number three in the Premier League in goals per 90 minutes, I don't see why Giroud or Abraham did not feature at least in the last 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And I just don't get when you're playing a super high level team like man city you want to have grown-ups in there right you yes Werner and and others they're coming in from bundesliga and it's bundesliga is awesome but it's not the premier league and i just feel like you you're sticking with your guy probably a bit too long where it's detrimental from a confidence perspective because confidence management is everything at this level and i feel like um, that way has been lost, and I feel like you've left left your two best guns uh, on the shelf there. And I just that to me, I feel like is unforgivable. There's all this talk about Lampard um, being pressured out. I don't see that happening. I don't from a reason perspective. I don't think it makes any sense at all. Um, you know, when you bought Lampard, you. You brought him in, you knew what you were going to get. You were going to get an experienced coach who is also a legend. And I just, if the fans are turning on him now, then, you know, it's just, that's on them. I just feel like, um, and, and if ownership cha- turns on him, then I, I don't know what to say. I mean, they should have picked Allegri or they should have picked Potch, who was available until a week ago. So, you know, I, I think they're going to be these bumbles and you have to buy into Lampard's long-term prospect. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I see the same stats. I feel that, you know, I, I think that Chelsea was up four points this time, this uh, last, last season, and, and they were playing the youth. And I think the fans were all behind that. And now we've got, it, 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 it seems like Chelsea has bought the best, the best players out there as opposed to the best players for the system that they want to play. And I think we're seeing the consequences of that. So let's turn our attention to 
the last game, which happened on Monday, and that was Liverpool-Southampton. Southampton has been of some very strong form. Um, one wonders, you know, how is there, there after their, a 9-0 defeat to Leicester, um, really, are these guys for real, for real? And the Liverpool game, I think, maybe gave you some insights to that. What, what did you get out of that match? I mean, when I saw the team sheet, I was I thought this was going to be a, a bit of a bonkers game because Liverpool didn't start with any centre-backs. You had Fabinho and Jordan Henderson dropped in at centre-back uh, by Klopp. And he started with Thiago off for the first time since the Merseyside derby when he went off with a knee injury. And Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain came back from injury as well. So it was midfield of Thiago, uh, Wijnaldum and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. So I thought that, I mean, Liverpool were going to sort of take the game to Southampton in terms of pressing high energy because that midfield is that that was a, lo- a bit of energy that came into into the side with Oxlade-Chamberlain and obviously with Van Aldum already there. Southampton, to be honest, they had quite a few players missing. They've had quite a few players. Uh, Alex McCarthy, the co- goalkeeper, had tested positive. So Fraser Foster played his first game since, I think, February 2019 or 2020. I'm not sure, but in, in basically a long time. Uh, Yannick Vestergaard is out injured, so it's uh, the the defense has been Jack Stephens and uh, um, Jan Bednarek. Uh, you you saw uh, a lot of young players having to come in and uh, as substitutes because the likes of Theo Theo Walcott went off with an injury late on in the game. So Jan Valery, who's a 19 year old fullback, came on to play. Uh, Ibrahima Diallo, who was signed only in the summer was playing alongside James Watt-Prowse because Oriel Romeo was not available. Uh, so Southampton are actually a team who barely have any depth outside the sort of established 12 or 15 odd players. It's all youngsters there. And Hassan Utl actually said in the uh, post-match press conference that I, it seemed as though I brought, the, I brought the entire academy with me today to be on the bench because I don't have anybody else. But in terms of the game itself, and Klopp spoke about this as well. I thought uh, the problem was that Liverpool... It, it The thing is, at the top level, it's minute differences that can make or break a game. And Liverpool were maybe 2-3% off their usual, uh, you know, their usual intensity, their usual selves, but that was enough for them to lose this game. Alexander-Arnold, that was obviously didn't have a good game at all. And people would have seen the stat that's doing the rounds where which is that he lost the ball 38 times in in the game, which is the highest in the league so far for any player. And he was obviously taken off uh, as well. James Milner came on and played a right back. So in terms of tactics, I thought our selection, the thing is Liverpool have actually not really suffered that much since Van Dijk got injured. They've played 12 games since then. They've only conceded eight goals since Virgil Van Dijk got injured in that Merseyside derby. Where it's where it has caused the problem actually is in their build-up and attack. So because they don't have Joe Gomez and uh, Van Dijk and even Joel Matip, who was injured, came back and got injured again. They don't have their first-choice center halves. The speed of play goes down. You maybe take a touch more. You you need to take an extra second to figure out. Okay, if you're say Jordan Henderson, you're playing at center back. You 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 obviously haven't played there before, so you it'll take you take an extra second to figure out where. Alexander Arnold is or where Robertson is for you before you make that pass. And that extra second is what makes the difference between 
Robertson receiving the ball in space in a one-on-one or him receiving the ball with the Southampton players already having got back and there being no, no space for him to advance. So it's those small things which I think are causing a problem for Liverpool now because it's not just this game. They've picked up two points from the last three games, including this one. So these things are, th- uh, you know, these small issues which arise due to you not having your first choice players or you having to play players in unfamiliar positions. So, I mean, there, it, 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 it'll be interesting to see how this goes on because it's also... Also, I mean, we need to remember the fact that Diogo Jota has also been out for six games now. So, uh, Klopp has barely rotated Firmino, Salah and Mane. It's been those three as his sort of first-choice front three in almost all these games. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have... And I don't think he trusts the likes of Shakiri, Origi to start games. He can he, he, He's used them as um, impact substitutes of the bench, but I don't think he, he trusts them to start a game and score the goals to to win games right mm-hmm. from the beginning so that i think is now what is beginning to cause a problem for klopp and for liverpool obviously they're still on the top of the table they they're still probably the best team in england and we will see them bounce back from this but it's th- these last three games and especially the southampton game have now given i think a lot of hope to the likes of united city chelsea i mean maybe not chelsea but the chasing pack, basically, even Leicester, Spurs, that Liverpool are not invincible. They they definitely can be caught this season. Yes. So I agree with you on some elements. I, I agree with you on the fact that Van Dyke, Matip, or Gomez, that that extra second, that extra that pass, that particularly the long diagonals to the wingers, to the Salahs or the Manes. Um, just aren't happening. Um, but I, I will tell you, I am not worried about Liverpool at all. This was, this was a breather for them. I mean, let's face it. They had 17 shots on, on, in total compared to Southampton seven. Uh, and the uncharacteristic part is only one was on target, um, versus Southampton's three. And one of those three, I would argue is, one of the luckiest shots I think I've ever seen in football, right? With the with Ings back to the goal, he. I would Ings, have to disagree there. I don't think it's luck. Well, I think all it's I'm saying is in the interview with Ings afterwards, they said, "Was that a shot or a cross?" He's like, "No, no, no, no. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a shot." And and so you kind of knew that it was one of those sort of things that you just weren't sure about. And if he, if he, if he did that 10 times, maybe it goes in twice once maybe. So let's, let's keep in mind the game was predicated on, on one fluky goal in a couple of minutes. And then the truth is Southampton to, to use the term that the, the youngsters ran their socks off. Right. And, and you're right. Liverpool was off by two or 3%. Mane was off. Um, Salah was off. Firmino was seemed a bit off too, and it's not often when you have all those folks off. And when Jota, when they are, Jota can step in and and be on. You know, one of the four will be on, and it wasn't the case. And I get the fact that they've drawn, they drew against Fulham, they lost. Um, uh, I'm sorry that they've they've had a, a poor run of of results, but I just feel like. 
let's not get too reactionary on on Liverpool because I still think they're head and shoulders above everyone. The only people that are roughly in the conversation still is Man City if they play if it's Man City of this weekend rather than Man City of the rest of the the season. Yeah, I mean. I said earlier that I'm not saying that United are title contenders at the moment, but this, I mean, what I meant to say was, and I, is the fact that Liverpool are obviously not at the level they were in the last two seasons. And I think nobody is. City aren't, yeah. Chelsea aren't, nobody is at that level. And a lot of it is down to the fact that this season has been a crazy one, right? With COVID, with fixture postponements with the number of games everyone's playing the lack of preseason physical conditioning lack of physical physical conditioning i should say so we we've, we've said earlier as well this is going to be an unpredictable season it's going to be a messy season it's going to be one where an unfancy team or a, a sort of outsider does have a chance to win the title or finish in the top 4 or finish in a europa league spot which they may not have done otherwise so which is why i say that if united are still in the conversation with you know 13 games 15 games to go then you can probably think of them being able to pull it off even a leicester for example uh aston villa could probably finish in the top 4 if they if it's a similar conversation where they're two or three points off or maybe even four or five points away so liverpool yes liverpool are still the team to beat but i mean they've dropped more points this season already than they did all of last season uh and even though this was only their second loss of the campaign the fact still is you know that they drew against west brom they drew against newcastle and now they've lost to southampton so they've dropped points against teams you would normally expect them to beat comfortably even though yes in previous years under klopp they have had their issues against these sort of teams not southampton but say a newcastle or a west brom who sit back and defend but uh, they've normally been able to sort of get past them but they're not doing so this season so it'd be interesting to see how klop what sort of a response klop is able to get because of these sort of last three games where they've only picked up two points they play um aston villa in the fa cup on the weekend where i think everybody is going to be rested i think it'll probably be an under 23 team or something like that that klop sends out and then because of the fact that then next sunday or the coming sunday after that is united's visit to anfield on the 17th of january so that game i think is going to be huge in terms of both showing us liverpool's response to this and telling us whether united are genuine contenders Well, we'll be interested to see. I mean, I, I again, I'm going to hand stand fast. I think Liverpool is still strong favorites. Uh, what I will say is, is you know, La Liga is pretty much has two teams that are in contention: City A, and again, it's still early. Again, two teams in contention: uh, Ligon uh, has four uh, within six points of each other, and the Premier League has ten. um so it's it's pretty fascinating to see that you know i will say that i was ambivalent about a super league being created because i thought oh, one has already been created uh but the truth is uh, if you look at at the uh leaderboards for this season for the premier league 
maybe there's hope for some parity. Um, and I, I think from a that's that's great from a viewership perspective. That's great from a league perspective. And you know we'll we'll see where things go. Um, so let's spend just a few minutes. We can't help but take a look at a at a Manchester derby of sorts, uh, namely the EFL Cup or the Carabao Cup. Um, how do you see that matchup going, Harshal? I'll be honest. Um, after the Chelsea City game, it does seem like it's going to be a lot trickier than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Not that a game against City is ever easy, but the form that they'd shown before this game made me think that, and obviously the fact that United and City had already played at Old Trafford earlier this season, it was in a little draw where Pep. I mean, you won't, ex- you didn't, you don't normally expect Pep to be the cautious uh, one in in uh, in a matchup, but even he went for caution and he didn't want to expose City to United's counterattacks, so that finished in a little draw. So, I, I still don't know what he's going to do for tomorrow's game, whether. He'll stick with the same setup as he did at Chelsea because United obviously are one of the best counter-attacking sides in the league. So if he does go with the same setup, I don't and I mean I don't expect United to go with a similar setup to Chelsea and look to hog possession and, and try to press City high and all of that. They're gonna sit back and defend and sort of, you know, defend space and look to counter-attack because that's worked really well for them against City under Solskjaer. Solskjaer won th- three times against City last season. So using that same sort of setup. So if that is the way that United set up and City set up the way they did against Chelsea, I think it'll be a great game because both teams will create chances. City will create chances just because of the way their movement will be and, and the way that, uh, I mean, just the, 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 which is, uh, the way we saw them break down Chelsea's defence, they can do a similar job in United. But United are much better at counterattacking, so then I expect them to be able to take advantage of that space. So it could be an entertaining game, or it could be another sort of nil-nil or a really close game where one goal makes the difference. Because uh, this is a one-legged tie. Carabao Cup ties are usually two legs. Semi-final, the Carabao Cup semi-finals are usually two legs, but because of COVID, it is a one-leg tie, so the winner goes straight to Wembley for the final. So maybe one of the two managers might let go of the of the handbrake a little bit and be like, you know what, if we get the goal, we're in a final. And I hope that that is the case because if, I mean, that will mean that we see an entertaining game. But for sure, because or rather after having seen the way Chelsea were dismantled by City, it could be a difficult one for United if they keep the same setup and a similar lineup. Yeah, you know, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I, I don't know if I have a clean read on this game here for all the reasons you've said. I'm probably going to go with a 1-1 draw, even though I I think almost with equal probability it could be a, a 3-1 or 3-0 Man City win. Uh, so I just... I'm still not convinced that the Man City we saw this weekend is the Man City going forward. And there's something to Man United. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't know if they should be tied for first, but they're they're showing some metal, and we'll kind of see where things go. So I don't, I, I think one one's probably going to be where it is, just because these really strong teams have a great way of canceling themselves out. So. So why don't we leave it there? Um, we are sponsored by the Premier League Guide. 
a fabulous gift for those mad about football, Moneyball for football. It's opposition analysis plus eye candy. The current update is available at www.thinkingfan.com and on Amazon. For now, uh, join us for that next football fans podcast. Bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. 